Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England, episode 100, Theatres of War. So, last time, we'd got to the Christmas of 1337. France had effectively declared war by confiscating Gascony. Edward was desperate to take up the challenge, but he faced problems. He had grumpy Scots just waiting for the chance to be revolting, and he didn't have the money he needed for war. So this week, let's talk a bit about money, the engine of war as it were, and how that began to affect the way that Edward worked with Parliament. Then we'll have a bit of a flyby of the political and geographical layout of the main theatres of war and finish off by getting Edward over to the continent at last. The finances of England had changed a bit since the growth of the wool trade and through the relationships between Parliament and Edward I and II. The first change was good for England's monarch. The second was not so good. So the good news first. Customs revenues had steadily grown. The 13th century king could pretty much rely on about £12,000 or more from the customs. It's all a bit confused during the earlier years of Edward's reign since they mess about with exemptions and so on. So it's difficult to tell exactly what customs revenue would have been there for the king in the early part of his reign. But by the early 1350s, which is incidentally after the Black Death has decimated the population, Edward could be sure of £40,000 a year at least. And in some years he could get over £100,000 of revenue. Customs, by the way, count it as ordinary revenue, i.e. the king needed no permission from Parliament to collect them. On the other hand, the bad change was that the idea that the king should live off his own had gathered pace. So by the time Edward came along, as we've seen, it's already firmly established that if the king wanted any special taxation, he had to go and talk to Parliament about it. By the late 1330s, the principle was established that if the king wanted a tax, he had to be able to show that there was a special cause, a burning need, like war with Scotland or war with France, for example. He couldn't just go along and say that he was feeling like going on something of a beaner and fancied a bit more pocket money. This has consequences. Edward III's reign is a particularly important one for the development of the parliamentary system not this time caused by opposition and royal incompetence, but by a king who knew his job and did it well. Edward knew that the key to peace and harmony was consent, so whether he really had to or not, he never made the same mistakes as Grandfather Ted. So, remember when in 1294, Edward I charged over the Channel and started fighting the French without talking to his magnates, rather unsuccessfully as it happens? Edward III will do more than his fair share of charging over and fighting the French, 
and every bit as unsuccessful as Edward I at times, but he'll do everything in his power to make sure that he does so with the consent of the people. For Edward, this consent was broader than just the Magnum Concilium, his great men. It meant the merchants, the knights and the broader clergy. So the commons were brought along to Parliament much more regularly than they had been before and now became a standard part of Parliament. So the last Parliament, which doesn't have the commons there, was 1325. But there was a difference. Now they were kept apart in a separate place to the barons and magnates. And so we get the start of the system, which seems to be absolutely normal to us now, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Another development was the role of the clergy in the commons. Taxes on the clergy were a very valuable part of the direct taxation that the king could levy. And as far as he was concerned, Parliament seemed like a thoroughly sensible and practical place to get everything done. So why not do lay and clerical subsidies at the same time, kill two birds with one stone and all that sort of thing? But as far as the clergy was concerned, this was not a principle they liked one little bit. They'd essentially conceded that the king could call the shots as far as charging clerical taxation was concerned, rather than having the Pope do it. But suggesting that Parliament, an essentially lay organisation, could approve taxes of the clergy was one step too far. And so in 1340, it was agreed that it was the convocations of York and Canterbury, i.e. specifically ecclesiastical institutions, that could grant clerical taxation, not Parliament. And so the proctors of the clergy were removed from the commons. And so again it is today. The bishops and so on sit in the House of Lords, but there are no people sitting as representatives of the clergy in the House of Commons. The composition of the lower house was quickly established, once the clergy had been excluded. Each of the 37 shires returned two MPs each, which would be the group we call knights, or, slightly anachronistically, the gentry. Then there would be the representatives from the boroughs, represented by burgesses of the towns. Borough representation is more than a little bit weird, and you'll search in vain for any kind of rhyme or reason to it. Between 1350 and 1450, it seems to settle down to about 80 representatives, But as the number of towns grow after 1500, so did the number of representatives, and the rules about which towns get a parliamentary representative make no real sense. The south-west of England is massively over-representative, for example, and the north of England is massively under-represented. A number of tiny, teeny towns get an MP and fall under the exclusive control of a member of the local gentry who then wields disproportionate power and influence in Parliament. But this structure will essentially remain in place until the 19th century. Edward's approach tended to emphasise the role of the Commons and of Parliament as a whole. So, when cardinals came from the Pope trying to make peace between the French and the English monarchs, he insisted that he could do nothing about declaring war or peace without the consent of Parliament. It's pretty clear that legally he could do what he jolly well liked, but it's equally clear that Edward took this commitment seriously. So, for example, in 1338, Edward called a Parliament because he needed agreement about his strategy to fight the Scots and the French, which agreement, incidentally, was given. As another example, a couple of years later, in 1340, he needed more money for the war, and the way he and his ministers approached the discussion became a model. Essentially, Edward's ministers stood before the Commons and explained what was happening, 
and why Edward needed the money, and they made the case that this constituted special circumstances. The Commons duly agreed, and so on. We'll talk more later about this Parliament. But the point to make here is that in this way the Commons was getting drawn into a discussion about policy with the King and his ministers. We're nowhere near the Commons setting policy, or even shaping it, but they are now involved in a discussion. And so the role of Parliament changes inch by inch. OK, so with that bit of background about finances and Parliament done, back to the Hundred Years' War. Hands up out there, how many of you like military history, wars and stuff, and how many of you hate it? Because I need to give you fair warning that, look, we're talking a Hundred Years' War here, so there's going to be a lot of war stuff, seriously. Today, we're going to start by talking about the theatres of war and have a look at where things were in 1337 at the start. As far as geography is concerned, if you willfully refuse to go to the History of England website and look at the maps, well, I can't be responsible for the consequences. Don't say I didn't warn you. You will be a fool to yourself and any other cliché you care to deploy. There are something like four theatres of war in this early stage of the conflict, which, as Edward would quickly find out, was too, too many. The first is northern France and the Low Countries. Then there's Gascony and the southwest of France, which was, after all, what the whole conflict was supposed to be about. Then there's Scotland. And then there's the sea, the English Channel or La Manche, depending on which side you belong to. So let's start with northern France. So we're talking about the states in the top left-hand corner of continental Europe here, northwest, the Low Countries. The furthest north is the Duchy of Brabant. The Dukes of Brabant owe allegiance to the Holy Roman Emperor. It's a highly populated area with famous towns like Antwerp, noted for their trade and cloth manufacture and therefore heavily reliant on their trade of English wool. Next down and hugging the coastline is Flanders, parts of which are part of current-day Belgium and parts of which are in modern-day France. Exactly the same as Brabant, it's rich, heavily populated, dominated by the cloth trade and the need for English wool, with famous towns such as Bruges and Ghent. However, the Counts of Flanders owe allegiance and pay homage to the kings of France, rather than the Holy Roman Emperor. The merchant and people of Flanders had made a bid for freedom, but Philip VI had crushed that idea with his victory at Cassel in 1328. And so in our period it's ruled by a count, in this case Count Louis. Louis was deeply Francophile, holding true to France above all pressures. He had what you might describe as a difficult relationship with his subjects. His taxes had already caused them to chuck him out once, in 1323, only to be returned, as we said, by Philip of France. In 1337, we're in the midst of economic warfare with Flanders, with a ban on all exports of English wool to the county, and the pain in Flanders is building. And then we have Hainault, which is inland from Flanders, and again ruled by a count, and again within the French orbit. As you know, Hainault has a close relationship with England through Queen Philippa, who married our Edward. The house of Hainault was somewhat torn. The old Count William, who'd married his daughter to the English king, also just happened to be married to a Valois, the same family as the King of France. Old William popped his clogs in 1337, and his replacement, young William, who was 30 when his father died, really didn't buy into the whole alliance with England thing. He's heavily conflicted, poor lamb. 
Edward's strategy at this period, as we've discussed, was to build his allies on the French border. By aligning himself with Ludwig, the Holy Roman Emperor, he put himself in direct conflict with the Pope. Let me explain why. Relationships between the Holy Roman Empire and the Pope were going down the depressingly familiar path of conflict. The papacy was in exile in Avignon and therefore heavily influenced by the French. Ludwig had briefly set up an anti-Pope, a strategy which had crashed and burned, but in the process he'd been excommunicated on the grounds of heresy. So Pope Benedict, while by no means completely tied to Philip, was basically motivated to stop Edward visiting war on France. And when push came to shove, he'd be in the French camp and not the English. So, in the second theatre of war, we have the by now familiar situation of increasingly isolated English outposts in a sea of Scots. There's the lovely story of Black Agnes, the Countess of Dunbar, holding her castle against Salisbury in 1337. Salisbury did everything he could to reduce the castle, bringing massive siege engines to throw enormous boulders at the walls. From the battlements, Black Agnes shouted abuse at their marksmanship. When a boulder came close to hitting her, she calmly dusted off the battlements and kept up the abuse. As the Earl of Salisbury's master down south demanded results, in despair Salisbury brought the Countess's brother in front of the walls and threatened to hang him. Black Agnes told him to go right ahead and do his worst. As it happens, Salisbury wasn't mean enough to do it, but he knew when he was beaten, and before too long he had to up sticks and leave. At sea, France had a much more effective and active strategy than the English. They had seen early how important control of the sea was. A French government memo made this quite clear. They could hurt England economically, prevent communication and more easily bring French help to support the Scots. So Philip VI had not only assembled his own fleet, but had sent his agents out to Spain and to Italy, Genoa in particular, to recruit galleys and bring them into the Channel Fleet for May 1338. France had already hit England hard with raids along the south coast, and it was about to get much worse. Against this, the English method of collecting a fleet was a bit chaotic. So rather than hiring galleys or having a royal navy, they had to requisition the ships from places like the Sink Ports and other private merchants. The result was that it took ages to get a fleet together, and often as not, a fair proportion of the boats never turned up at all. The result of all this was that the Great Army of the Sea, as the French called it, essentially bossed the Channel in 1337. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And our final theatre was Gascony. Consistently, in the early years of the war, the English and Gascony faced a crippling lack of resources. At best, with a fair wind and everything going their way, the Gascon nobility could raise somewhere between four and 7,000 men in their own defence. There were very few English troops to add to this, 
It had been Edward's clear intention to send a fleet and an army, but it was constantly delayed, until in the end it was cancelled in favour of northern France, where things looked more encouraging at the time. In the end, a leader called John of Norwich tipped up with a few hundred men, and that was the lot. Against the Gascon nobility, then, the French were regularly fielding armies of 12,000 plus. Even raising the Gascon army was something of a diplomatic game. When the King of France came to town, every man jack of those Gascons had to decide whether to fight for the English or the French, and the consequences of getting it wrong were not pretty. Obviously, the big one was that you sided with Les Rospif, and the French won, and you'd then be left only with the possessions you could fit on a handcart. But also there was often an immediate hit, since many of them had possessions both in Gascony and elsewhere in France. The elsewhere in France stuff got confiscated right away. We've had many chances to hear the names of the English lords and so on, and none of the Gascon for a century or so, so let me introduce you to the three biggest noble houses of the region. They are the Foix, the Albre, and the Armagnac. Now we've already met the Foix family in days gone by, a fiercely independent, difficult set of characters, with a territory in the far south of Gascony, and stretching over to Béarn, across what is now the Spanish-French border. Gaston de Foix is the name of our protagonist at the moment, and is staunchly pro-self, but also staunchly anti-English. Gaston himself was 22 in 1337, and had already proved himself ambitious and warlike, and able to produce large bands of warriors at short notice. If there was anyone Gaston de Foix detested more than the English, it was the Count of Armagnac, their great rival. Most of the lands of the Count of Armagnac lay east of the English Duchy of Gascony, but they also had significant holdings in the Duchy as well. And then finally you have the Albrey. A very large proportion of Albrey's lands sat foursquare inside the Duchy. They had the most to lose by making the wrong decision. Nonetheless, in 1337, all these three families were on the side of the French. In the case of the Albrey family, it was a pretty equivocal commitment. Many of the family members had declared for the English, but Bernard, the head of the family, was in word committed to the French, but indeed managed quite remarkably not to fight for anyone. Ranged against the French was a bloke called Oliver Ingham, the Seneschal of Gascony. Ingham was from North Norfolk, was now 50, and was an experienced soldier who'd served with Edward II as a household knight. He'd been appointed to the household of Edward's half-brother, the Earl of Kent, and acted as his lieutenant in Gascony. Actually, we've met Oliver before, at Mortimer's side in Nottingham Castle, and after Edward's coup, he'd been sent to trial, and it looked bad for him. But Edward knew a good man when he saw one, and by the end of 1330, he'd been restored to his estates. Ingham is an unsung hero of Edward's war, who, like a number of effective royal servants, hasn't achieved the reputation he deserved, either from history or, in fact, from his own king. He was relieved of his command in 1343 and died at Ingham in 1344, with his property being divided between his two granddaughters. His monument in the church at Ingham is rather magnificent and slightly unusual. He's lying on a bed of stones and is twisted, clutching his sword as though he's about to spring out of bed and attack the devil, or maybe the French. Basically, Ingham's not known to us because he didn't win any massive battles, but he won the trust of the Gascon nobility, 
and during these early years did as well as anyone could imagine to make the very best use of hideously limited resources. And just how limited those resources were can be shown by the meeting Ingham held in October 1337 at a church for all the Gascon lords planning to fight for the English. Ingham wrote to the church, full of trepidation to be speaking from the pulpit to the assembled throng, to a church filled with an air of excitement mingled with worry at the approach of war. In fact, the attendance was pretty similar to the attendance I managed to get 30 years ago for the inaugural meeting of the Switzerland Village Church Youth Club, presentation by the Green Party. Not even enough of them to fill a side chapel. Ingham dealt skilfully with the lack of resource, but sometimes at the cost of political control. With so few soldiers, all the English and Gascons could hope to do was to hold their citadels and hope they could survive until Edward could send more men to help. So what they did was to put the Gascon lords in control of different segments of the duchy. Let us take Pierre and his son Jean de Grailly. They took a substantial block of territory west of Bordeaux, manned the fortifications and collected taxes on the king's behalf to pay for it all. They were effectively mini-kings. Jean de Grailly, incidentally, will become famous as the Captal de Bouche. Captal being a feudal title of lordship in that part of the world. Ingham's strategy, then, helped him hold much of Gascony in the face of mounting odds, but at the cost of central control and by sacrificing any kind of offensive capability. So, hopefully the scene is set at the end of 1337, but we're not quite finished with 1337, momentous year that it's been. Picture the scene. You're in a meadow by the west wall of the mighty town of Ghent in Flanders. It's the 28th of December. Angry, armed men are gathering. These men are angry, worried and desperate in equal measure. The embargo on wool from England was killing the town's trade, its lifeblood, and the people were impoverished. Louis, their lord the Count, they grumbled, cared nothing for their plight. Instead of helping, he'd raised taxes, gone hunting, and done nothing to sweet-talk the English round. And worse, England was threatening to establish a wool staple in Brabant, a place where everyone would have to come to buy their wool. They would be ruined. And then the man himself appears, Jacques Artevelt. Here's a man who would do something for them. He'd light a fire under their noble arses. Just a few days later, the angry crowd had taken over Ghent. Instead of Louis, they appointed five captains-general to run the show, men of their own. And one of those men was Jacques Artevelt, the so-called brewer of Ghent and a man with a big name in the history of the Low Countries. Who was he, this bloke, and where did he come from? Sadly, that's a bit of a mystery. There was not much evidence of his involvement in politics before 1337, but he was clearly a rich man, and however he'd made his money, he was a superb speaker and demagogue, able to bend crowds to his will, and was followed with devotion by the craftsmen and journeymen of Ghent. His reputation is as the father of Flemish independence and democracy, part of Flanders' long struggle for independence from foreign influence, whether that be France, the Empire, or even England. Well, that's as maybe but it's also worth remembering that Artevelt was always the boss, and a pretty autocratic one at that. At the height of his power, he walked the streets with a bodyguard of thugs and sat pretty firmly on any sign of opposition. 
but Artevelt was at least clear about his priorities, as recorded in his own words. Without the goodwill of the King of England we shall die, for Flanders lives by making cloth, and cloth cannot be made without wool. It follows that we must make a friend of the King of England. Flanders had two other great trading towns, Bruges and Ypres, or Wipers if you prefer. Both these towns were as convinced as Ghent of the strength of this argument, and in short order all three towns were part of the same movement. Outside these big towns, the Count and the Lords and smaller towns held on to their loyalty to the French crown. And indeed for Artevelt, his preference was to have England as a friend without bringing the wrath of France down on his head, which was something of a challenging tightrope to walk. But it was by no means a certainty that Artevelt would walk into Edward's camp and revoke his loyalty to France. To Edward, the revolution in Flanders was of enormous significance. With some careful diplomacy, maybe he could add another ally on France's flank and remove the use of Flanders' port to supply the Scots with French support. So without delay, his agents were over to Flanders like a rat up a drain. Careful diplomacy, however, was not at the top of Philip VI's mind when he heard the news. His initial reaction was quite simply outrage. As far as he was concerned, this was rebellion, pure and simple. He immediately had a Flemish agent he had in prison executed. He used his influence with the Pope to have him excommunicate the whole lay population of Ghent. He announced that the Constable and Marshal of France were going to pull down Ghent's walls. Sadly for Philip, all this hissy fit demonstrated was that both he and the Count of Flanders were effectively powerless. The Count did finally manage to get a small army together with the French, but it was soundly beaten up by Artevelt's Flemings. So by June 1338, Philip was forced to accept the realities of life and recognise the Flemings' neutrality. This was great news for Edward. Maybe not all he wanted, but a great start and no mistake. By spring 1338, Edward had declared his defiance of Philip VI. His emissary appeared before Philip and his court, bearing Edward's letter. It was pointedly addressed to Philip of Valois, rather than to the King of France. It said, and I quote, We give you notice that we intend to conquer our inheritance by our own force of arms. And yet, please note, gentle listeners, there's no direct claim to be the rightful King of France, but we're getting closer. Philip and his court were quietly contemptuous and unconcerned. France is, after all, the richest, most powerful nation of medieval Europe, whereas England is a pimple on the European buttock. Philip smiled, complimented the emissary on a good job well done, may well have patted his bottom and allowed him to leave. By July 1338, Edward finally set out for Antwerp, seven weeks later than he'd planned, hit by the perennial inefficiencies of getting an English fleet together and the weather. Mentioning that reminds me of an email I had from someone called Matt. How long, Matt asks, did it take to cross the Channel? It's an interesting question, because the answer is, for the English, essentially, inshallah. It should take just a few days. But because the English use square-rigged, single-sailed cogs, if the wind was in the wrong direction, you just sat it out. The history of Anglo-French wars is littered with cancelled invasions because the wind wouldn't play ball. Richard the Lionheart had dealt with this by having royal oared galleys based at Portsmouth. 
the French were clever enough to have a lot of oared galleys, but not really Edward until later on in the war. Anyway, despite all this, specially prepared banners streamed bravely from Edward's ships as they set off. The fair breeze blew, and the furrow followed free. And Edward's heart was no doubt full of hope that he would start campaigning and doing what he did best and sticking it to the French. Edward didn't lack the confidence and belief in his mission, the lad, and this was just as well. Because despite developments in Flanders, the situation waiting for him in Brabant was not pretty. The next two years are going to be full of frustration, almost to the point of humiliation for Edward, during which he does not necessarily show himself off to his best advantage. When we look back at Edward, we can rightly admire his enormous political skill in keeping the resources of a small nation focused on their king's dynastic ambitions, despite considerable cost, pain and at times indifference. But in the early years, it has to be said, in the face of disappointment and frustration, he will prove to be very human indeed. But let us leave Edward full of hope for the moment, heading for the continent. Next week, we'll cover the first couple of years of war, the first of Edward's great victories, but also the financial and political mire that dogs the first years of his war. I have a few donators to thank as well this week. Thanks to Bill and David for your kind donations. As ever, grateful thanks also to everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or joins the Facebook group and indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck everyone and have a great week.